0: The title of our sermon is, This Is Us, and our keywords for our worshipers and training are family, time, and home. I recently read an article in the New York Post that said, quote, according to administrators of higher education... Parents today regularly intervene in their children's affairs at school, calling up university presidents to resolve roommate issues, impersonating their kids on the phone, and even secretly, but obviously, doing the schoolwork themselves. I've seen it across the Jonathan Gibraltar, president of Wells College in upstate New York. I not quite understand why, but there seems to be parents who are insecure about letting their kids go. I think the wackiest example was when a mother called and asked for permission to do her daughter's internship for her because the girl had too much anxiety. Similarly, an administrator at a liberal arts college in the Northwest said she had trouble keeping up with the parental texts and emails that flooded her phone. Over the last two or three years, it has become unbearable, she said. I've had parents calling up and impersonating their children, asking questions that could have been easily asked by their kids. One lady didn't even bother to disguise her Long Island soccer mom voice. She went on to say, in their minds, they're paying you. We have numerous parents asking if we can wake up their kids and walk them to class. I've even seen a parent ask my associate if we can make sure their kids are taking their medications." Can you imagine what's going to happen to those kids when they get their first job? I hope one of them, just one of them, joins the army. (laughs) A recent survey in Pew Research confirms that family is the number one source to which Americans look for meaning, fulfillment, and satisfaction in their lives. And we're not talking about a small minority here. We're, talking about, we're not talking about family just sort of nudging out other things by a small number. We're talking about 70% of Americans mentioning that their family is their primary source for meaning and fulfillment in this life. After family, Americans said they drew meaning and satisfaction from being outdoors, spending time with friends, caring for their pets, and listening to to music, behind all of those things, Americans mind you, 75 percent of whom consider themselves Christians, said religion carried a great deal of meaning. Religious faith ranked two whole percentage points above job and career. Now as we continue in our series called "Idol This Morning," we're going to discuss one of the more acceptable of all the evangelical idols, and that is the family. This one always makes the preacher the most popular guy in the room. So we're going to have a great time this morning. We've looked over the past few weeks at idolatry in all of the various places in the Bible, that, and we've considered what the Bible has said to us about idolatry in general, and then we started narrowing it down to specifics. Last week we considered self-idolatry, worship of the self. And so now we think about our family. How is it that we idolize our families? How would I know if I was idolizing my family? What are the dangers of idolizing the family? A lot of considerations this morning. So we're going to begin in our text, Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. And we're going to read this whole section. Really, we're focusing on verses 25 through 27 and verse 33. If you're going to follow along in the Blue ESV Bible, you can find this on page 874. Beginning in verse 25, Luke chapter 14. While the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he is surrounded by massive crowds. He'd been teaching for a while, and people started to follow him. And what you learn by reading this whole section is that all of these people have different motives. Some of them were very devout followers of Jesus. Some were curious onlookers. Some were enemies trying to catch him so that they could run him off. Some didn't know what to think about him and they were just wondering what was going on. But what we know and we understand from the whole story is that most of these people who were surrounding Jesus were eventually going to reject him at the cross in large part because of their unwillingness to do the very things that Jesus mentions in this passage. And none more shocking of all of these things than the very first thing he says in the section that we're going to look at most specifically this morning. And I want to look at this under three commands. The first is from verses 25 and 26. And that is that you must hate your family. Now what is up with Jesus here? One of the things that makes this such a startling statement is the strong language that is accompanying it. You must hate your family. Did Jesus really command an unqualified hatred of our parents, our children, our siblings, and ourselves if we are going to be his disciples? We need to think about this in the context of the entire Bible. And we know that Jesus has identified in Scripture the importance of honoring our father and mother in perfect harmony with the fifth commandment. The Lord calls husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And Jesus himself loved the little children in such a way that he, uh, he is said to have taken them into his arms, to put his hands on them and to bless them. So Jesus very clearly teaches the importance of being reconciled to one another, to loving our enemies, and indeed to love our neighbors as ourselves and as Christ has loved us. So with these realities in mind, we can't look at this passage and just assume that Jesus is contradicting himself or that it is a different group of people, and so he just says different things to different people. What Jesus says here is meant to get our attention, to stir us up a little bit. He's teaching us that our love for Him must be so great, it must be so pervasive in all of life, our natural love for our family pales in comparison. In other words, we are to subordinate everything, even our own being, even our own familial relationships to our love and our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is to be our first and primary focus in all of life. He is to receive all of our loyalty. All other relationships must take second place. Jesus tells the crowds, and he's telling us, do you think you're my disciple? He's giving them a test. Do you think you are going to follow me? Well, then you must love me so much That your love for your family looks like a hatred in comparison. If this isn't the case, don't pretend that you are going to be my follower. So we certainly need to understand all of this relationship talk that he's giving us to these other things that I've mentioned about what God has clearly commanded. And while we may have a little relief that this is a qualified statement here, it it still should give us some pause. It still should force us to ask the question ourselves, am I committed to Christ in this way? Jesus is taking aim, direct aim, at an idol that so many Christians tend to have. Remember a few weeks ago when we started talking about idolatry, one of the things that we said was, Our idols are not necessarily things that in and of themselves are necessarily bad. In fact, some of the things that we idolize may even be good. Family is a good thing. Family is a beautiful thing. Family is one of the most important institutions in the world, and it needs to be loved and cherished and protected. But family can very quickly turn from being a good, healthy, important relationship to becoming an idol that can be a replacement for Christ and his bride. Now, we need to be careful here. I I want to affirm, I am a wonderfully happy man with the most amazing wife in the world and three wonderful children that are worth dying for. I have two SUVs and five car seats and a grocery bill to prove it. And as far as 2019 American society is concerned, parents loving their kids too much or churches doing too much to support families and and encourage marriage, or fathers being available to their kids and to their spouses and staying faithful and loving toward one another. These aren't problems that generally aid in the United States. It's not that we have too many high-functioning families. We live in a culture that is obsessed, absolutely obsessed with trying to destroy what we understand from the Bible to be the family. Anything from redefining marriage altogether to murdering children in the womb to undermining the institution as a whole and classifying it as outdated and unnecessary. We must emphasize the importance of marriage and family and childbearing and childrearing and and biblical parenting and education of our children. These are all good, important, and proper things and God is pleased when we view them rightly. And yet... The temptation in the midst of all of that is to elevate the family to a place that rests above the Lord. It's lurking, it's subtle, it's hard to spot in ourselves. So what might it look like for us to not, in Jesus' words, to hate our father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters in the way that he has commanded? Well, there's a lot of ways we can think about this. It might look like subtly communicating to those who are single that there's another level of spiritual maturity that can be attained once they're married. I know of some churches that won't even consider a man for their pastor if he isn't married, implying that the Apostle Paul and Jesus themselves would not be qualified to be their pastor. Or have you ever rationalized missing worship on the Lord's Day because your children have a sporting event? Or you needed to get a head start on the road for your family vacation. Or you're going to have a big crowd over for lunch that day, so you needed to stay back and prepare the meal. It's easy to think, well, it's, it's just one Sunday. But that one Sunday has a cumulative effect. When you start to couple that with all of the one Sundays, we begin to be very careless in our ordering of our lives when it comes to the worship of God and our commitment and our emphasis on the means of grace in our lives. Will our children grow up to say, my parents love me and I know that because I never missed a baseball tournament? Or will they grow up to say, no matter what was going on in my life, I knew the most important day of the week was the Lord's Day. And the most important time of that day was when the church gathered to worship. Have you ever known... That a single person is going to be alone for a holiday and you had no intention of inviting them because holidays are for family? Or maybe there's no chance you're willing to serve the church on a Sunday or invite someone over to get to know them because Sunday is when everyone gathers at grandma's house for pot roast. To what extent are you willing to go to make sure that there's absolute peace in your family no matter what? It's not uncommon to see families abandon Orthodox Christian convictions about church discipline when their children are found to be an unrepentant sin or when one of them embraces a sinful lifestyle. When things get difficult in your family and a child rebels or a marriage gets tough, do you do everything you can to hide that reality to make sure everyone puts on their Sunday best and smiles and says the right things so that nobody assumes that Norman Rockwell's Thanksgiving painting isn't the perfect depiction of your family? Can you stand the fact that your child might get a C in college because they didn't work hard enough or are you going to call their professor? They might have a difficult roommate, and they're going to have to learn to live with that. They might have an unreasonable boss that yells at them. Have you set the expectations so low for your children by doing everything for them? Have you refused to let them struggle, to let them cry, to let them think for even a moment that maybe you're not their best friend and you were never intended to be? Are you single and so desperate for a spouse and children that it's all that you think about and that that you're willing at some point to compromise your biblical convictions the first time someone pays attention to you? We could spend all afternoon listing off all of the ways that we are prone to idolize our family, but when we put athletic or intellectual or cultural or artistic or, or social benefits of ourselves, our parents, our, our spouses, our children, or our grandchildren, before our communion with Christ, we have severely missed the mark. Now, I've tried to be an equal opportunity offender. I hope we're still friends. But you see, this is more prevalent than we think it is, isn't it? It is quite possible that our commitment to our family is so strong... That instead of doing what Jesus has said and to, to hate our family in the way He's describing it, is that instead we hate God and love our families disproportionately. The blood of your family is not thicker than the blood of Christ. Now listen, I know there will be times when all of us are really co- uh, tempted to compromise a little bit. It is the reality of this life, that we are going to be put in situations where we have to make difficult decisions in our commitment to Christ that may not be popular with our families your non-christian family may come for a visit and be completely annoyed that you won't go to the beach with them on sunday morning because you're going to be worshiping with the saints after all we're only here once a year what's the big deal your brother or sister uh, your brother or sister may be for a visit you know the one who thinks veganism is the highest virtue They may be annoyed that you eat your meals together as a family and you gather together and thank God for that beautiful piece of beef on your plate. Your kids' coaches, they won't understand why you will be so committed to the Lord that you set aside your recreations on the Lord's Day. Look, all these things are tough. It's tough to have those interactions. And, and while it may be tough, it might be very annoying to some of your family members. And, and sometimes, especially for our kids, it might be very difficult for them. But disciples of Jesus must always be ready to subordinate everything to him. The relational cost of discipleship may seem a bit harsh at first. But in right perspective, in right priority, this focuses our lives and makes our lives richer and fuller because the true source of joy, the true true source of peace, the true source of righteousness is not the things that we want to do or the people we live with. It is in Christ alone. Now, here's the paradox of all of this. The way that you can love your family in the best possible way is to love them in the way that does not elevate them to a place in your life that is greater than God. Here's the thing. When you idolize your family, you are putting a weight on them that they cannot possibly carry. Your family cannot bear the weight of being your functional God. And and the fact is that your family will let you down and the only one in your life that cannot let you down is your, is your God. You cannot have a God that lets you down. And so if your family is your God, you're going to destroy that relationship. It's the problem that parents often have when they want their children to love them, so they buy them whatever they want. They never tell them no, and they let them run the house. You already know what kind of adults they're going to be when they they want their kids to be their friends instead of small people that the Lord has called them to shepherd? Other people are terrible gods. Moms, your children are terrible gods. Men, your wives are terrible gods. Kids, your parents are terrible gods. Do not worship them. They cannot live up to what you need from God. They can't do it, and they shouldn't be expected to do it. And when they don't do it, it's it's not just a crushing blow to you, it's a crushing blow to them because the relationship has been fractured, and it weighs on them in such a way that it's suffocating and nearly impossible to function within because they will never live up to your expectations. We properly love our families by putting them second, by subordinating them to the Lord, because our love for God will enable us to love everyone else with a greater love. Well, the second thing that we see in verse 27 is that you must pick up a cross. Right in line with all of this is this thinking. Again, to the people around Jesus, this kind of talking would have been equally a shocking statement. He called all of them to pick up an instrument of torture and death and to carry it with them following after Jesus. Now, obviously, this would come into uh, fuller view later on after Jesus was crucified, but at this point, you have to imagine how incredibly insane this would have sounded to them. They were certainly familiar with crucifixion as a practice, but it was for the worst of the worst. The hardened criminals that needed to die outside the gates, it was those guys that would have been brought to the hill of death and nailed to a cross. And now Jesus is telling them to somehow relate to that practice, to have something to do with that practice. Matthew Matthew Henry comments on this and says, Disciples of Jesus must be willing to quit that which was very dear and therefore must come to him thoroughly weaned from their creature comforts and dead to them so as to cheerfully part with them rather than to quit their interest in Christ. Christian discipleship is a series of deaths, As Christians, we're called to constantly die. We talk about this a lot here, don't we? The obligation of the Christian is to daily die to ourselves. You and I must die to ourselves every day that we might live unto Christ and live for the advantage of others. That's the call to authentic Christian discipleship. That's what's emblazoned all throughout Scripture. If you want to live... You must surely die. Disciples follow Christ on this path of self-denial. Disciples embrace suffering as a part of life. As Paul prayed in Philippians 3, he said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, the life of the disciple is not an easy one. C.S. Lewis had it right. He said, the Christian way is different. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. You see, so much of our lives are spent seeking to find out how it is that we can go on a treacherous journey by avoiding the pain. We want all the benefits of the Christian life without any of the suffering that comes with it. But true discipleship is what Jesus is after. It requires everything. And part of that everything is your family. Jesus is saying, you want to have true communion with me? Hand over your children. You want to walk faithfully with the Lord? Give me your spouse. You want to know what it means to truly live? Put to death all of your idolatry of those you are closest to and cannot bring to you what you're searching for because that can only be found in me. Here's the reality. This is where the gold is refined. No one has ever been a true disciple of Christ and has lived a life of total ease. You will face opposition. You will face rejection. You will be disregarded by your family members. Sometimes you will be confronted with difficult situations that require you to do what's right instead of what's comfortable, and you are not exempt from the results of living in a fallen world. But you see, in all of this discomfort in this life as disciples of Jesus, something beautiful emerges. The challenge of hating all others before Christ and taking up a cross to follow Him begins in time to create a new disciple. A man or a woman who is sharp and pungent. A a, a salty Christian who brings tang and flavor to life. Everyone benefits, not the least of which is his hated family. You are most able to give yourself to your family when you have died to yourself and you are living upon Christ. It's only then that the most difficult of your family members, we all have them, right? We all have crazy in our families, Now listen, this is not absolutely written in the Bible, but I do think it's a general revelation that we all have crazy family members. And if you don't know any of your crazy family members, you might want to start asking some questions about yourself. (laughs) But even them, even the crazy ones, when we die to ourselves, then we can start loving even them. Your crazy uncle or your overbearing mother or your self-righteous brother or your cat lady cousin. It's only when you're dead to yourself and living upon Christ that you can love them in the way that you're called to love them. It's not by elevating them to a place where they're, they're actually taking over as your functional God. That's the place for Christ. Now, if you're, if you're not a Christian, the only thing that sounds crazy here is what I'm saying. And that's fine. I've been accused of a, lot of, of a lot of things and being completely sane is not one of them. But here's what Jesus promises you. At least hear me out here. Jesus promises you that he knows what's in heart. And here's the thing. I know what's in your heart, too, because you and I have a lot in common, more than you realize. The search for meaning, the search for satisfaction, the search for joy in your life is one that all humans experience together. And perhaps one of the ways that you do that is to think about your family just like 70% of America, that they are the source of your meaning and your purpose. That's what you live for, family. But Jesus calls you to something greater. And he's telling you that you're not actually loving your family as much as you can. Because first, you must love Christ. And only when you love Christ can you love your family in the way that is most meaningful. Listen, you're going to fail your family, and they're going to fail you. The only one who will never fail you is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he calls you, he calls all of us to look to him by faith trusting in Him, knowing that He is the only perfect one because He lived a life of perfection, fulfilling the law to the T. He died a sinner's death on a cross that was reserved for us, taking upon Himself the penalty of sin and death that all of us were made to endure because of our own sin. And He says, by faith, you trust in Me, I fulfilled the law on your behalf. I died on your behalf. Trust in me and my resurrection from the dead and life everlasting is yours as well. It is yours for the taking. And so the call from Jesus this morning is not to look at our families as the source of meaning and joy, but to look to Christ by faith, trusting in him and all that he has done that we might truly live. And he shows us that in our last final point this morning in verse 33, that we must renounce all for Christ. Another way to think of this is, every one of you who does not say goodbye to all that he has cannot be a disciple of mine. That's what Jesus is saying. When we value family above Christ, we have no claim to Christ as our Savior. We are disciples of our family. Can we truly say to Jesus, all I have is yours? Do you value Christ as the greatest, most valued treasure in your life? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So you see, Jesus isn't calling us to live lives of isolation. He's not calling us to treat our families badly or to neglect our children. He's calling us to prioritize our lives so that we're not allowing our communion with Him to suffer so that we can bow to our idols of our family. Husbands, fathers, this responsibility falls especially to you. Single men, ladies, what are your greatest affections fixed upon? It's okay to desire marriage. That's a good thing. It is a good and beautiful thing. But what if it never happens? Can you be content in Christ if He calls you to be single your entire life? Marriage is not ultimate, Christ is ultimate. Can you live without that and still be fulfilled in Christ? He's calling you to live a life of perfect devotion to Him alone. And none of our lives are complete and fulfilling when we put our hope in a happy family. A child who gets to have every experience that they ever wanted is not happy and fulfilled in the way that Christ can offer fulfillment. Pleasing our parents to the extent of neglecting the Lord is not going to bring peace to our families that we can rest in and find fulfillment in. Listen, we need to be settled on the fact that our kids aren't going to be perfect I can almost guarantee you that they're not going to be professional athletes. They may get into Harvard or Yale, and if they do, you better not be doing their homework because they need the struggle. They need the pain. They need the late nights to help them learn about the difficult realities of life. Guess what? You're going to have really tough days in your marriage. Some really intense fellowship with your spouse. You're going to be irritated with your parents. One day you're going to be sad when your parents are no longer around. But listen, these things cannot define the Christian. These things cannot define who we are, who we're going to be, and where we're going to find our hope. Our lives are complete and fulfilling when we're willing to give up not only our stuff, but even our relationships with others, our very lives for the sake of following Christ. There's actually an illustration of all of this that our church family is very close to, very recent. Most of you know the story. Two years ago, George Aikens Jr. was 17 years old, football player, local high school, and a good student. He was at McDonald's with a few of his guys from his football team the night after they went to the movie theater, then one of them went outside. He was in a fight with some other boys, and George went out to break up the fight. And before he could get his friend inside, shots were fired, George was shot in the chest, and he died right there in the parking lot, right in Savannah. I ministered at George's funeral, and there his parents stood up and said, we will miss our son. We're also sad that another young man has ruined his life by doing this. And while we believe he should face justice, we want to offer him forgiveness. Words cannot describe the pain, but Jesus is sufficient. The gospel is sufficient. Jesus is enough. And then just a few weeks ago, those two parents, George and Shiloh Akins, got a phone call that their oldest child, their daughter, was shot point blank in the head in Sam's Club's parking lot in Pooler. She survived in the ICU for a few days at the hospital, and then she died at 22 years old. I ministered at Quinique's funeral just two weeks ago and stood on the ground next to her brother's grave where she stood next to me two years before that. Now watching her casket get lowered into the ground, and yet her parents stood together and said, we love our daughter, we will miss our daughter. Words cannot describe the pain, but we want to offer forgiveness to the people who did this. They've messed up. Their lives, they will never get back, but we want our girl back, but she's not coming back. But you know what? The gospel is true. God is real. Jesus is enough. He is our all. Listen, how do two parents lose their kids in two years in brutal murders and stand in front of hundreds of people and say Jesus is enough? Because they've learned a powerful truth. As much as we love and cherish and adore and want the absolute best for our family, we cannot hold our family as an idol along with holding on to Christ and think that we are being faithful. But when we are faithful, we can love and serve our families in ways that far exceed any benefit for you and for them when we put our faith in Christ. Love your family by hating them. Pick up the cross follow Jesus, renounce all for Christ, and then you will find what it means to truly love your family. Jesus is enough. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're grateful for your word when it challenges us to consider our own heart's to consider our own challenges, to consider our own weaknesses, to consider our own sins. This morning we're thankful when your word pierces us and calls on us to consider whether or not Jesus truly is our all in all. If everything in this life was stripped away, if we, like Job, are sitting in sackcloth and ashes with all having been taken away, can we say that Jesus is enough? May it be, O oh God, that by Your Word, through the power of Your Spirit, that each and every heart in here today can truly rest in that fact, Jesus truly is enough. In his name we pray. Amen.